Revelation chapter 3. Anyone lose this crew? Nope. All right. All right. What? Oh, it's from the table? All right. Hopefully it didn't fall apart on me. I don't know. Maybe. Can't feel it. All right. Revelation chapter 3 tonight. Again, I hope you enjoyed that uh, Zoom call we did with our missionaries. Uh, Revelation chapter 3. Tonight we are in the sixth study, the sixth church. It's actually our eighth study, but our sixth church, we're at the church of Philadelphia tonight. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. No, it's not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, It's the church in Philadelphia there in Asia Minor. And really this is the, the church that every... Christ-honoring church should aspire to be. Um, This is the church that there is nothing of criticism, there's no word of uh, correction that is said of this church, because really, this was a gospel-centric church. This was a thriving church. And again, this is the church that we should try to become and try to be like. And really, this this is the prayer that I have for Eagle Drive Baptist Church, that we could become a consistent, thriving church like Philadelphia was. So excited about this study and excited about what we are going to get into tonight. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Follow along. The Bible says, And the angel and the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, and that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, And the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of the heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. This is Jesus speaking. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, let me ask a couple questions tonight. We'll get into this. What does it take? What do you think it takes for a church to become a healthy, thriving church? What do you think it takes for a church to become a healthy, thriving church? Tiffany? Unity, that's very important. We've been talking about that a lot in the Acts series. Hang on, I'm about to get hung up on myself. Uh, David, do you have something? Faith. Faith, very good. Faith, unity. Mia? Uh, Sharing the gospel, yeah, very good. Violet? That's good. Uh, not, in, not allowing compromise, very good. Natasha? People who want more, Yes. Like more money? Is that what you're talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, that's too, Yeah, <laughs> I know what you're talking. Yes, Gordon? Soul winning, yes. Uh, and really, that's, that's evident of this church in Philadelphia. I mean, they were a great commission church. 
They understood the Great Commission, and they were all about the Great Commission. Anyone else? What do you think it takes for a church to become a healthy, thriving church? Stephanie? Obedience. Obedience. Very good. Um, Man, there's so many other things that we can talk about. Uh, Let me ask this question. Can a church that does not reach the lost consistently be labeled as a thriving church? No. No. This kind of goes to Brother Gordon's, you know, statement there that, you know, they've got to be an evangelism and, you know, witnessing church and about lost people. So we have to think about that. I want you to think about that as we really dive into this tonight. Again, this is for the church as a whole, but the church is made up of individuals, right? It's made up of Christians. So we are the church. We are the church of Eagle Drive, those that are here, those that are members of Eagle Drive Baptist Church. So if we collectively, as, as the group, as the members, are not consistently reaching the lost, then our church is not going to be a thriving church. And in all likelihood, as we talked about last week, we might be a Sardis church, which is what? It's a dead church. And there are a lot of churches today that are dying and don't even realize it. Now, there is no perfect church. There are no perfect members. There is no perfect pastor. Please don't say amen. Uh, And if you're looking for that, you know, you're going to be disappointed. Hush it. Every church faces problems. Every church faces difficulties. But how do you come out of the challenge and difficulties that you face? Let me, let me give you an illustration. A daughter once complained to her father about how hard things were for her. As soon as I solve one problem, she said, another one comes up. I'm tired of struggling. Her father, who was a chef, took her into the kitchen where he filled three pots of water and placed each on the fire on high. Soon the pots came to a boil. In one, he placed carrots. In the second, he placed eggs. In the third, he placed coffee beans. He let them sit and boil without saying a word. The daughter impatiently waited, wondering what he was doing. After a while, he went over and turned off the burners. He finished out, uh, he fished out the carrots and placed them in the bowl. He pulled the eggs out and placed them in a bowl. He poured the coffee into a bowl. Turning to his daughter, he asked, Darling, what do you see? Carrots, eggs, and coffee, she replied. He brought her closer and asked her to feel the carrots. She did and noted that they were very soft. He then asked her to take an egg and break it. After pulling off the shell, she observed that it was a hard-boiled egg. Finally, he asked her to sip the coffee. She smiled as she tasted its rich flavor. She asked, Dad, what are, you, what are you trying to do? What does all this mean? He explained that each of them had faced the same adversity. They all faced boiling water, but each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong, hard, unrelenting, but after being subjected to the boiling water, it softened and became weak. The egg was very fragile. Its thin outer shell had protected its liquid interior, but after sitting through the boiling water, its inside hardened. The ground coffee beans were quite unique, however. By being in the boiling water, they changed the water. The father then asked his daughter, when adversity strikes, which one are you? You see, far too many Christians discover that when adversity strikes, they're more like carrots or eggs than they are coffee. You see, when adversity strikes, when trouble comes our way, it shouldn't come about to harden us or to make us weaker. It should change us, and it should change us into the image of the indescribable Christ. And that's what we've seen here in Revelation. Now, let me give you a couple details about Philadelphia before we really dive into those characteristics tonight. 
The city of Philadelphia is known for many things. Uh, one of the greatest uh, feats that are the things that Philadelphia is known for um, is that you know statue right in front of the uh, Museum of Art. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, statue of Rocky. Again, I'm I'm in the wrong place. It's not what I mean. Uh, but anyone know what Philadelphia means? Anybody know what Philadelphia means? City of brotherly love. Sorry, I didn't ask you, Rodney, because he's the only one that raised his hand. Yes. You would have done well in school. Yes, thank you. Appreciate that. It means the city of brotherly love. It comes from the Greek word phileo, meaning to love, and um, adelphos, meaning brother. Now, the biblical city of Philadelphia is located about 28 miles southeast of the city of Sardis in the modern-day country of Turkey. It was the youngest of the seven cities mentioned in Revelation. One feature, and this is very important, one feature about the city was that the city was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD, along with Sardis and other cities in the locale. Most of the other cities recovered rather quickly from the disaster, but the aftershocks continued in Philadelphia for quite a number of years. Many of the residents had to flee the city repeatedly. Imagine that. You live in a city, there's a lot of earthquakes and a lot of aftershocks, and you have to continually flee that city. Tiberius Caesar helped Philadelphia recover from the earthquake. And out of gratitude, the city changed its name to Neo-Caesarea, which means New Caesar, and bore that name for a while. Philadelphia was founded for a special purpose with a special intention. (coughs) Excuse me. It was situated where the borders of Mycenae, Lydia, and Fergia met. It was a border town, but it was not as a garrison town that Philadelphia was founded. But there was little danger there. It was founded with the deliberate intention that it might be a missionary of Greek culture and the Greek language to other cities around the area. So it's very important because that's what Christ is meaning when he is talking about the open door that Philadelphia has. So let's go ahead and jump into it tonight, all these different things that we see. First of all, the characteristics of Christ in verse number seven. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith, he that is true, he that is, uh, sorry, he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. So if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to write down. He is the holy one, he is the true one, and he is the sovereign one. Jesus Christ, referring to himself as he does with all of the churches, he is the holy one, the true one, and the sovereign one. The term holy comes from the Greek hagios, means set apart or a cut above. In the context, it means that Jesus has been set apart from God. This term stresses his deity. It's the idea of purity as well, but an idea of separateness. God is separate from creation as the creator. He is separate from sin as the savior. Isaiah 57, 15, the Bible says, whose name is holy. It's talking about Jesus. Now, holiness is a quality of the deity of Christ. And here's what belief in the deity of Christ should reflect in our lives, because we should believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God and that Jesus also is God. So belief in that is three things. It affects three things. First of all is this. Belief affects action. Here's what I mean. If we truly believe that Jesus is God, not just some man, not just some great, great prophet, then it should affect our action, which means we should act differently because of who Jesus is. We should understand that Jesus is God and have a healthy reverence and respect of his very nature. 
Also, belief should affect our attitude, meaning that we should have a different attitude concerning things because of who God is. And we're going to hit more on that on Sunday as we continue the narrative in Acts chapter 4 going into chapter 5 with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. The third thing is this, belief affects activity, meaning this should affect what we do. Now, leave those up here for just a second, Michael. These three things, if we truly understand the nature of God, if we truly understand the nature of Jesus Christ, that they are one and the same yet separate, then it should affect everything about us. It should affect our action, our attitude, and our activity. What we do should be affected because we understand that Jesus is God. He is the Christ. He sees all. He knows all. And we cannot fool Jesus Christ, can we? We cannot fool God. So He is the Holy One. He is the True One. The True One meaning, uh, it comes from the Greek word alethinos, which means genuine or authentic. Jesus is the one who corresponds to reality. You see, many deny these attributes that are applied to Jesus, that He is holy and He is true. Yet scriptures are our guide. We're in John chapter 14, verse 6 says, Jesus saith unto them, I am what? Anybody? The way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh from the Father but by me. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, accepting Him as our Savior. So He is the Holy One, He is the True One, but also He is the Sovereign One. Notice in verse 7 it says, These things saith the He that is holy, He that is true, He that hath the key of David. You see, Jesus has the key of David. The background here, and I'm trying to go quickly tonight, but the background here is found in Isaiah chapter 22. Speaking of a man named Elkanim, the treasurer of David, or it's not Elkanim, but Eliakim, sorry. Eliakim was an Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ. He was the picture of the dependable, faithful administer of the affairs of God's people. And th- this is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ who is in full control. Isaiah twenty two twenty two. I'm going to paraphrase it. It says this, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulders. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. And that's what it says here in verse number seven. He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. So if God opens a door, there is no one in this world that can shut that door. But if God shuts a door, there is no one that can open it. How many remember the story of Noah and the ark? Who shut the ark? Who shut the door? God. The people on the outside were trying to get in, weren't they? But they couldn't get in because when God shuts the door, it's bolted shut. There is no getting in. Doesn't matter what you do, what you say, it's shut. So when God shuts something, it's shut. But when God opens something, it's very important that we understand that. And it's important that we walk through those doors. And that's what he says here in verse number 7. And this is, again, it's talking about his sovereignty. It's talking that Jesus Christ has authority over all things. He's the one that controls life. He's the one that controls death. You know, Philadelphia, like all the other cities there, was filled with idolatry and paganism. Yet, the darker the atmosphere the brighter the light of truth for Jesus Christ was. And this is important. Only one is the sovereign Lord who holds the key to the entrance of heaven and eternal life. Only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. And that's what this verse, verse 7, teaches us. That Jesus Christ is the only holy one. He is the only sovereign one. He is the only one that's in control of anything and everything. And his name is Jesus Christ. That should bring us hope and encouragement. 
Criticism and correction, again, there is none because of this church and what they did and what they stood for. Now we get to the commendation or the, um, the, uh, the praise that was given to this church in verse number 8 and 9. Go ahead and write this down. I have given you an open door to evangelize. I have given you an open door to evangelize. Let's read verse number 8. I know thy works. Now, like many of the other churches, after Jesus said that, it was kind of, well, I know thy works. I know what you're doing, so let me talk about what you're doing and all the bad stuff. But he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. No man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength. They, they had limited strength, limited number of people. They weren't uh, you know, a wealthy church. They didn't have you know, this, this great clout in their culture. Uh, they were really kind of a bunch of nobodies. Yet God had given them this amazing open door to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and people were being saved left and right, and it was an amazing thing. And this church, as it says in verse number 8, has kept my word hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, those that are against you, which say they are Jews, but are not, that do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. They're going to fall down. And know that I have loved thee. Henry Martin once said, the spirit of Christ, listen, is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we become. You see, every Christian should be a missionary. We talked to one of our missionaries tonight. I'm not going to reference their name because we're live, but we talked to one of our missionaries tonight. But every Christian in this church tonight is a missionary. You might not go somewhere overseas, but you're a missionary to your people right where you are. And as we talked about even on Sunday in this new series in Acts, the gospel should be above all. And if the gospel is truly above all, then we are going to be about missionary work, meaning we are going to be about proclaiming the gospel and preaching the gospel. Brother Mike shared with me, I think just yesterday, he had an opportunity to just share the gospel two times in the car ride with another co-worker. You see, that's great. That's taking advantage of a missionary opportunity. That here is someone that's kind of trapped in a car with me, so I'm going to share the gospel with him. I'm going to proclaim the gospel with him. Hey, I can get louder. It's okay. It's all good. I think she's loud. I'm louder. But Ephesus was too busy doing good things with the wrong heart and wrong motive. But Philadelphia, listen, they weren't doing good things for the wrong reason. They were doing good things for the right reason. And that's what a a church should be about. They had that gospel above all attitude. Listen, our love for Jesus should not be based on duty. Love for Jesus and not ritualism or legalism moved this church forward and the people within it to action. And get this truth down. The gospel was their message. God's grace was their motive. The gospel was their message. God's grace was their motive. Since God has gifted me with grace, since God has given me His grace, I am going to use that to allow it to come in me and flow out of me. And I'm going to preach. I'm going to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And this open door is the same that has been given to really us as Americans today. For the past how many years, 200 plus years of our existence, we have had an open door, have we not? Thousands upon thousands upon millions of people have heard the gospel. Again, we have missionaries that we talk to tonight that don't have as open of a door as we have. 
And we should be thankful for that. Now that door may be shutting, but the door is still open. So if the door is still open, what does that mean for us? We should go through it, right? If there is an open door, walk through it. I don't know what someone said, but anyway. Shut it. No, don't shut it. Who said that? Turn it. Quit acting like your dad, all right? My goodness. Pull up a chair in my office, Justin, after this, and we'll talk, all right? Um, oh, my goodness. Oh, that was great. No, you don't shut it. Maybe at your house, all right? Uh, it, was, it, was, it was funny. It was good. But um, where was I at? I don't know. I think I need that spark over there. Um, yeah, if, if there's a door open for the gospel, yeah, thank you. If there's a door open for the gospel, we should continue to go through that open door to share the gospel with people. And again, it might, there might come a day when in America, we don't have the opportunity to, to, to have the freedoms that we have in Christ to share the gospel openly. Who knows what's going to happen and whether the, this election or the next election or whatever. But regardless of that, we need to take advantage of it today and tomorrow. You know, that's why, again, I, I preach hard. I preach passionately. And that's why I'm excited about this series and as well as the series on Sunday. Uh, Sunday mornings, this gospel above all, it's challenging. And just wait till Sunday. It's even more challenging than last week. If you thought last week was challenging, just wait till this week. And I know now you guys are really going to come because you're like, I can't wait to be challenged and ask questions that I don't want to hear. Like, are you a hypocrite? Uh, don't answer that. But anyway, um, the thing is, we have an open door to the gospel. So we have to make sure the gospel is above all in all that we do and say. We have to press on. Verse number eight, it continues, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, the temple of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not. They are, you know, proclaiming something that they're really not. They're lying. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to, to know that I have loved thee. But it says there that, you know, I know that you have little strength back in verse number eight. I think I read verse number nine, but verse number eight says, for thou hast little strength. They had limited strength. They weren't wealthy. They weren't large. They carried limited influence within the city of Philadelphia. You know, opposition though, did not deter them from the gospel obedience. It did not deter them from being a great commission church, as Brother Gordon was kind of alluding to. No matter the opposition, no matter the persecution, they had a job to do. You know what they did? They did it. And again, this is encouraging, but it should be challenging at the same time for us. Because we have an opportunity in America, in Texas, with the freedoms that we have, we have open doors all around, even though people might shut the door on us. We still have open doors to share the gospel, to claim the gospel. But what are we doing? If we're not sharing it with people, then we are, there, there's, there's signs of death in our own life. And opposition should not deter you from gospel obedience. It should not deter you from being a great commission Christian and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Limited strength, listen, should never be an excuse for not living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. And yet we use this as an excuse all the time. Churches use this as an excuse all the time. Well, we don't have a lot of you know, funds in our budget, so there's not a lot of things we can do. Uh, there's not a lot of people here, so there's not a lot of things we can do. It's just an excuse. There's always an excuse for not obeying God, isn't there? There's always an excuse for not obeying God. This church had excuses they could have used, especially because the limited size, the limited capacity that they could serve and reach out their community. But you know what? That did not hinder them. 
Here's a great illustration of limited strength and what it can do. Two dogs were arguing about who could open the door the easiest in their bow-wow language. They were going at it. Shut your mouth. Thank you. The Great Dane said to the little Yorkie, I'm going to use Yorkie because I have Yorkie. The Great Dane said to the little Yorkie, be quiet. You cannot do anything. You can't even reach the doorknob. Just stand on your hind legs and see how high you can get. The Yorkie said, I know I can go faster than you can. But the Great Dane said, stand back and I'll show you. So he got up on his hind legs and got his paws around the doorknob and twisted and turned. And after exerting much energy in about five minutes, the Great Dane was finally able to open the door and he then closed the door and began barking. Five minutes. How are you going to beat that? The door is closed and you can't even reach the knob. What are you going to do? I'm a big dog and you're just a little puppy. The Yorkie said, stand back. The one with the little power came to the door, took his front paws and started scratching. After 40 seconds, his owner, his master, came to the door and opened it. (laughs) See? Limited strength. Still did something. But some people, listen, are like the big dog. They think they can open the door on their own by making their own way. You may be well able to do that, but Christ has not called us to be fully independent. Some people pride themselves on their independence. I am an independent person. Well, good for you, but you're not supposed to be. Because you're supposed to be dependent on Jesus. I'm glad you're independent in some things, but you're supposed to be dependent on Jesus Christ. And many churches today that think that we have too few people, we can't do anything. And that's, that's, oh, that's the, the mindset of small churches that I cannot stand. We're just a small church. This is who we are. We're going to stay a small church. No, you don't have to stay a small church. It doesn't matter your strength, the limited strength that you have, the limited funds in the budget. You can still do something for Christ if you choose to. If you're obedient, the sky is the limit because the door is open for all of us as, as Christ's church. Really, the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel going forward. And Jesus is the one that builds the church, not us. We're just there to help. Mike Statura said, the mark of a great church, listen to this, it's not, it's not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. Again, that's what I desire of us. It's not about you know, building bigger buildings and having more seats in the auditorium. You know, Some churches pride themselves on that. We have a 15,000 seat auditorium. Well, that's great. It's like 300 people there. But we have a 15,000 seat auditorium. It's not about that. It's about the sending capacity. And that's one thing I've talked about at our church, that I want us to be a sending church. I want us to be like a church at Antioch that is sending people out with the gospel on mission for Jesus Christ. Verse number nine, we've already read it, but he says, behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus is faithful to his people. He promised his church that he would humble their enemies. Anyone ever had some enemy that you've ever faced? You know, we want to humble them, right? We want them to fall down and bow down to us, but Jesus will humble them. It kind of reminds me of what Paul said in Philippians chapter two, verse nine through 11, where it says, one day, every knee will bow right? Every tongue will confess that who is Lord? Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Listen, unbelief sees the obstacles, but faith sees the opportunities. And since the Lord holds the keys, he is in control of the outcome. So what do we have to fear? Nobody can close the door on you as long as Jesus is opening it. Fear, unbelief, and delay have caused the church to miss many God-given opportunities. 
And we can't be hasty in our, our attempt for things like, well, the door is open, so we just got to keep going forward and you know, just be foolish. We can't be foolish. We have to be a good steward. The Bible talks about that. But there are many churches and many Christians that are very hesitant. I see there's an opportunity there, but I just got to pray for the next 16 years about it until the Lord really gives me an answer. I understand there's the, there's the, you know, the divine line of you know, waiting on God, His timing, and you know, being too hasty. But some Christians aren't hasty enough, really. They're sitting back just waiting. I don't know what they're waiting on. You know, waiting on something to fall from the sky. And all right, there's my sign, so I guess I'll go ahead and do what I'm supposed to do. God has already told us what to do in His Word, yet we're not doing it. And here's the challenge as we close, verses 10 through 13. Go ahead and write this down. You will be kept from the hour of temptation, made a pillar in God's temple, receive the name of God, the name of God's city, which is Jerusalem, and the new name of Jesus Christ. Because thou hast kept the word, verse 10, of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. Now this is a very um, uh, highly uh, contrasted verse. There's a lot of people that, that debate this and what it's talking about. Verse number 10, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And what we see here is this. Jesus will protect us according to his plans. Again, this verse evokes a lot of debate as to the timing of the trial that is mentioned here. Now, Jesus, listen to this. He is not saying that as a church we are exempt from trial. Rather, there is a specific hour of testing. And a lot of people take passages like this, and I believe they take it out of context. And, you know, Bible talks, you know, not necessarily specifically, but in, in detail. It talks about uh, the rapture, the time of the rapture. And there's really three common beliefs, and I'm not going to go deep into this tonight. But there are three common beliefs about the rapture. Some, believe, some people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, known as kind of pre-trib meaning that the rapture, the rapture of the saints, the Christians, the church, is going to happen before the tribulation. Some people believe in a mid-tribulation or a mid-trib, meaning that during the middle, that three and a half years, that's when the church is going to be raptured up. Some believe in a post-trib, that the church is going to go through it all, and at the end of the tribulation, that's when the church is going to be raptured up. I hold to the view of a pre-trib, and I believe that's what Revelation teaches us, I believe that's what the Bible teaches us, that before all, of, and really when you see this, after Revelation chapter 3, you don't really see the church mentioned as we get into the tribulation time there in chapter 6 going forward. And I firmly believe, again, based on my study of God's Word, my understanding of God's Word, that the church will be gone uh, before the tribulation. Some people believe we're in the tribulation now. We've been in the tribulation for years. You know, if they, if they think this is bad, it's nothing compared to what it's about to get. But anyway, the point of all this is this, that Jesus is coming soon, so stay strong. Now listen, this is not a threat of judgment. It's a promise of deliverance. So until the day that Jesus comes back, hold fast. Hold your ground. Be persistent in your obedience. Follow God's commands as He has given His Word. A command, listen, is not supposed to be negotiable. But every parent understands this. You give a command to your kid, and they start negotiating with you, right? How about this? This one up here is very good at it. I'm not pointing to Kevin. You should be. I should be. I know, that's why he looked up for the first time. No, I'm just kidding. This one right there that's playing with the cup, he's very good at negotiating. 
aren't you, Nate? Just say yes. Okay, he's only paying attention. Um, he's very good at negotiating. You know, we tell him to do something and he wants to negotiate his stance of what he wants to do. But here's the thing. Christians are the same. The commands of Jesus Christ are non-negotiable. It's easier to swim with the current, isn't it? Than against the current. But how many times are we swimming against the current in our Christian life? Christ hasn't called us to swim with the current of our society. He has called us to swim against the current of our society. And in order to survive, a salmon has to swim against the current, don't they? You know where ships are the safest typically? In the harbor, docked. But a ship was not made to sit in the harbor, was it? A ship was made to sail. Christians are not created to stay in the shallows, to stay docked. Christians are created to go out with the purpose, with the agenda of Jesus Christ and promote the gospel. Verse number 12, it says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Pillar. In ancient times, cities would would erect pillars as tributes to great people and they would write their name on it. Well, in God's kingdom, these pillars are the ones who are faithful. To be a pillar is a sign of a special reward of permanent position and honor and responsibility in God's kingdom. Pillars stand for stability. Don't you want to have the name that means really stability, that you are a stable Christian? Verse number 12, And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. We get new names, three names that we're talking about here. The city of God is the, the new Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And we'll get to that later. And I will write upon him my new name. The new name of Jesus here at the end of the verse signifies identification, character, ownership, recognition. The names signify, listen, who my God is, where my home is. It's not here on this earth, but it's in the new Jerusalem. And who my Lord is. I'm almost done, so stay with me. Many people think that living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel evoke a great risk. But the reality is, living the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, actually provides a great reward. And the reward of the gospel, listen to this, is God himself. What greater reward can you receive? Get this down, we're done. The church that remains faithful to their Savior and to the gospel will be rewarded by God. So never allow your limited strength to deter you from accessing supernatural strength, the supernatural strength that comes from God. I can't help but think, we've been talking a lot about the gospel. I think of Paul in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? The power of God. The gospel is the power because the gospel is God. The gospel is Jesus Christ. Don't allow your limited strength, your limited abilities as an excuse for not doing what you're supposed to do, for being who you're supposed to be. It is my prayer, again, that Eagle Drive Baptist Church become a Philadelphia church, meaning that we are a church that Jesus Christ could have nothing negative to say about it, that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They are living on mission. They are living on commission. They are a great commission church. People are being saved left and right. It's not just, well, once a year, someone gets saved. Praise God for that. It's daily, like the church at Acts, right? The early believers, it was a daily occurrence, but for many of us, it's not a daily occurrence. 
I mean, we're lucky if it's like once in a lifetime. And it's not because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and people just aren't receiving it. It's because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. You have to work at it. You have to continue to share the gospel with people. It's not going to just happen overnight where you share the gospel and all of a sudden 5,000 people are going to get saved like what happened to Peter and John. It was a daily occurrence. We must make the gospel a part of our daily life and live it out and proclaim it even though the world around us is against it. Even though the culture is about let's burn down cities like it's happening tonight. We still have to give them the gospel. We still have to preach the gospel and proclaim it. Don't allow circumstances, don't allow your limited strength to deter you from accessing supernatural strength that is in Jesus Christ.